0: to be here with you. Can I get a good morning from you guys? All right, good morning. Thank you. If you've come here today, I've got good news for you. If you've come here today and you're hoping to hear from God, you're in luck. God speaks to us through His Word and He impresses it on His heart, on our hearts through His Holy Spirit. And uh, let's never take for granted what happens when we gather together as His people. For granted, He's with us in our midst whenever we gather. He promises to bless the proclamation of His word and the hearing of His word as well. And and this is a great time to hear from God this morning. I want to encourage you again every time we come and when we hear books like Revelation that might seem strange. This is a great time to hear that God wants to speak to us specifically. And I want you to listen again. I'm going to put up on, on the screen the very beginning verses in Revelation because I want you to hear that afresh because when you're going through a book and over a long period of time, you can forget that this is God's Word. So let's listen. Revelation 1, 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. So I'm blessed and you're Blessed. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. Do you want to be blessed this morning? Excellent. We get to hear Revelation, God's words for us. And it says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For what? For the time is near. So as we hear Revelation today... Let's listen to it closely. Let's expect God to bless us. And then what we're going to do right now is we're going to stand for the reading of God's word, but I'm going to read it together. So it might be awkward to read it together, but let's stand and let's read God's word together. It'll be up on the screen for you. You can go to that slide. We're going to read this together because we want blessings both in speaking and and reading aloud, and we also want to be blessed in hearing it as well. So let's read and hear God's holy word together. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands." After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever." And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you that you promise your blessings to us. God, we are already blessed because we have read aloud the words of your prophecy. We have read aloud these words, Jesus, that you gave of yours to John. And God, we have all heard as well the words of your prophecy that you gave to reveal yourself to John, to the church, and to our church. God, thank you for your blessings. We, we want to claim those blessings right now because you promised those to us both in in reading and in hearing, so we claim those things now, Lord. And Lord, would you enable us to be attentive, to be able to continue to hear your word, to keep your word, to apply your word. God, may these not just be words like another book. God, may we not hear this like we would hear a documentary or a novel, but may we hear these words as your living, active revelation of yourself to us. And may they make us alive. God, we pray these things, Lord, and I pray by your spirit that you would enable me to preach your word and enable all of us to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think personally, and maybe it was because I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, but I think personally that, that one of the greatest theme songs of, of movie history of all time, see if you can guess it, can you guess what it is? Top Gun, Batman, knows. they're all bad guesses, but that's, that's, that's a good try, good try. So what else? What, something else from late 70s? Rocky. Who said Rocky? All right, excellent. That's actually Top Gun's really good too. But, but Rocky, Eye of the Tiger, I mean, that is a great theme song. And it goes throughout all the different movies and through Rocky 5 and then, I guess, like 6 and 7, and there's a bunch of Rocky, post-Rocky movies, and, and they continue on. It's a great Theme song, right? It, it inspires you, you know, the, 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 the lyrics, rising up back on the street, you know, like, rising up back on the street, did my time, took my chances. I'm a terrible singer, all right? I, I'm good with that. And um, went the distance, now I'm back on my feet, you know, this, this song of prevailing, just a man and his will to survive, or if you're a woman, just a woman and her will to survive. So many times it happens too fast, you know, trade your passion for glory, don't lose your grip on the dreams of the past, you must fight just to keep them alive, Right? You know that? Are you, are you, do you at least know the theme song? It's the eye of the tiger. It's the thrill of the fight, rising up to the challenge of arrival. The last known survivor, I don't know what this even means, stalks a prey in the night. He's watching us all with the eye of the tiger. It's inspiring. Ultimately, though, it's a song that I can do it. I can prevail. I can overcome. And it's alluring. It appeals to our base instinct. It appeals to our pride. It appeals to our desire to contribute. It appeals to our desire to be good enough, to be strong enough, to overcome on our own by our own sheer will and effort. And yet, it's kind of a hopeless song in one sense because if deep down you don't know it, you one day will, ultimately, we can't on our own rise up. We can't on our own overcome on our own ability There will come a time when something will get you down and you will not overcome it. And in one day, death will overcome you. Really Really inspiring right now, right? So, really encouraging. One day, you will not be good enough. You know, at times, you might not be able to counter things in your life. There might be a sickness, an illness. There might be trials, tribulations, circumstances that you cannot overcome. And this song will prove false to you. And when those times hit, you need another song. You need a better song, a better theme song than "Eye of the Tiger." You need a better theme song than Top Gun. You need a better theme song than Batman, which I don't even know what that is. But um, actually, I do. But I'm not going to do it now because all I have in my head now is na 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 You need a better song to sing when you encounter trials that you can't overcome on your own. You need a better song to sing when you encounter sickness that you can't fight you need a better song to sing when there are tribulations and times that you can't defeat on your own when life is too big when evil seems overwhelming you need a better song we need a better song and and what we have here is Jesus through John has given us a vision of a better song to sing He's given us a vision of a better song to sing, something bigger, a better theme song, because we won't always be able to do it on our own. One day strength will fail. One day we'll be defeated. One day, in one sense, we'll die. But we need to see what John saw in these first eight verses of, well, these only eight verses of chapter 15 and let it become a song that carries us into the future. And I want, want you to think about this. This is really the theme of this passage for us for today is, is let the theme of worship in the future, which is what we see here, we see this theme of worship in the future. These, these first eight verses are a picture of, of worship in the future. So let this theme of worship in the future be our theme song until the future. That's, that's the purpose of this passage. Whenever you have a passage in Revelation, you always have to wonder, why is this here? This is not just revelation for revelation's sake. This isn't just revelation. It's just thrown out there. There's always a reason. There's always a purpose. And the purpose of this passage seems to function so that the theme song of the future becomes our theme song to carry us into the future. That's the purpose of why this is here. John has seen vision after vision of what's to come. He has time and time again had different visions that encourage the seven different churches. He's writing to actual churches in What at that time was Asia Minor, it's the area of Turkey, seven different real churches that were facing real problems. And God gave him this vision to show the worship of the future so that song of the future would carry them into the future. Did you get that? He wants us to see what our future worship will be like so that it carries us into the future. Because if we do not have a theme song, if we do not have something that's carrying us that's greater than us, We're prone to fail. We're prone to give up. We're prone to give in. Just like those churches in that day, they faced many, many challenges. Temptations to give in. Temptations to conform. Temptations to give up. And I think those are things we all face too. We are challenged with temptations to give in to sin every day. We are challenged with Temptations to conform to the world around us. We're, we're challenged with temptations to give up in the faith, in the face of an overwhelming foe. Those churches were in need of endurance and faith. Our church, you are in need, I am in need of endurance and faith. We need a better theme song. They needed a theme song. They need to be reminded and see things in many different ways. That's why John, if you've noticed, there's a series of different sevens all throughout the book and different visions that John has, and often they recap each other. And so whenever you're reading through Revelation, don't read it like a chronology. Read it as themes that John repeats, that God repeats, because he's trying to drive home some things. He's trying to reiterate some truths to sustain, to encourage, and to edify the church. And so we see this is yet another sequence of seven, the final vision of seven really that John begins here, that John will unpack for us, that Jesus will lay out for us over the next chapter 16 and 17 as well as we see these bowls of wrath that are poured out in the next few chapters. And here is the introduction to this another cycle of seven. And what it's meant to show us is, is God is over the future That he is the one who is carrying out his plans for the future. They need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. We need to hear what John saw yet again. We need to see this sign in heaven and what he saw. Look at the very beginning of the passage. He said, I saw a sign in heaven. It was great and amazing. Look look in verse 1. I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues. It begins when he sees seven angels. Now, I think if I saw one angel, given the, dep- the depictions of angels in Scripture, if I saw one angel, you would hear me talking about that the rest of my life. When, when an angel comes on the scene, there, this great, powerful, mighty being... And here what we see, these angels, these powerful, mighty beings, there's these seven powerful, mighty beings, the, the perfect, complete number of angels carrying out God's perfect, complete will. That's what we see here. And what it's really showing us is it's God's power. You see, they're just, they're just messengers. These, these angels that seem so powerful to us, they're just God's messengers. And what they are is they are carrying out God's power. And that's what we see here at the very beginning is the song of the future is a song about God's power. The theme song that should motivate us is not about our power and I can rise up, I can get back on my feet. No, it's about God's power. God's power is the, the power that will sustain us in the future. Last week we were camping on Monday and... My kids found a little inchworm and I've always loved inchworms and they're really neat and they're erratic and they're kind of cool and there's this little inchworm and and one of my sons set it down and and they went to like just barely touch it with their finger and the thing wigged out. It was like all over the place and was wigging out and they're like, oh, look at that. It freaked out. All I did was get my finger near it. I'm like, yeah, you know how big your finger looks to a little inchworm? Could you imagine this giant finger coming down from the sky like getting ready to touch us? I mean, could you, wouldn't you freak out a little bit, right? If a you, you know, finger the size of this building goes to touch you, you'd be like, oh, you'd be like an inchworm too. And, and, you know, sometimes evil can seem that way to us. Sometimes the evil in the world around us, it seems too big, it seems so large, and we freak out. Evil seems so large to us. And yet what this is meant to show us is a picture that puts things in the right perspective. It shows us that no... The reality is that God is so much larger than evil. Evil might seem infinitely bigger than us, but the reality is God is infinitely bigger than evil. That's what we see is this domination, this utter and complete domination of the Almighty God over all things. We've seen these different cycles of seven. we've seen the seven. Seals that culminate with the blowing of seven different trumpets. And now we see the seven bowls of wrath. They're gonna they're gonna end in chapter 17, and Babylon the Great will be finally judged. We've already seen prophecies about the final judgment of Babylon, and now we're gonna come back and look at a different view of how Babylon will be judged in the next few chapters. We've seen different plagues between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And so it seems that somewhere in this is a different view, really, of those plagues. And what it seems that John shows us a different view is so that we can see different aspects of who God is and how he holds the future. And he's given different visions to represent the different things to come in, in, in a myriad of ways that they should reveal and show how things really are and how things really will be. Don't be confused when you see that you're not powerful enough. Don't be confused when you see that you're not powerful enough to overcome sickness, when you're not powerful enough to overcome your trials and your temptations. Don't be confused when you're not powerful enough to overcome evil, because here's the good news, God has overcome evil. The song of the future is about God's power. And all these things are meant to affect how we live here and now, knowing and believing and trusting that one day God's powerful justice, his powerful wrath, his powerful plan will be finished and completed. And that's, that's what we see here in this, this opening of these bowls of wrath in chapter 15. Look, look in verse 2. This, is, this can be somewhat confusing if you're not used to reading symbolism. He says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, it's a mistake in Revelation whenever we read images like that to try to picture that in our heads because John is grappling himself he sees something, and there's no referent here on earth. There's, there's nothing that, that's the same as, as what's here on earth. So he tries to, he tries to put it in terms that it kind of looks like a sea, it kind of looks like a sea of glass, but, it, but it's mingled with fire. And he says, those who had conquered the beast and its image, the number of his name, standing beside this sea of glass with harps of God in our hands, he's, he's wrestling now remember for a moment where what the sea is and in and the imagery of the last two chapters of Revelation. The sea has been the place where evil has come out of. And that's often the case in ancient literature. The sea is the source of evil in ancient literature. It's symbolic of the place. And we saw that the beast emerged from the sea. So it's this place that evil seems to have emerged from. And then here John sees what appears to be a sea of glass that's mingled with fire. Now, Other apocalyptic literature helps us in Revelation. I mean, sorry, in Daniel seven nine, yeah, it gives a scene of the beast being defeated. When the Ancient of Days, he takes his seat, and then a stream of fire or a river of fire flows out from the Almighty, and the beast is burned up with fire. And this seems to be some kind of reference to that. Because in Revelation, the fire is always associated with judgment and wrath. And, and ultimately, those people and those evil spirits who oppose God will be thrown into a lake of fire. And so what we see here, it kind of harkens back to the deliverance days of Pharaoh and his army when they were pursuing the Israelites and God swallowed up the army in the sea. And so at the edge of the sea, what did God's people do? They sang. Now that seems morbid, right? You know, all of Pharaoh's army just got swallowed up and and God's justice got carried out. They were all killed and they're singing joyfully. Have you ever thought about that? And yet it was good for them to sing because they weren't rejoicing over death. They were rejoicing over God. They're rejoicing in God's power, in God's deliverance. And so that seems what is in mind here and says there's a sea of glass and it's, it's mingled with fire. And the saints are standing there on the edge of the sea of glass, mingled with the fire. And what it's a picture of is, is the wrath of God judging evil and the stain standing, prevailing in God's might, in God's power. Now, remember for a minute, before you think of this is yet us overcoming on our own, how people conquer in Revelation. Do you remember how people conquer Revelation? Anybody want to shout it out? By the blood of the Lamb, I think is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. Revelation 12, 11 says, They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. We don't conquer on our own. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Even as great Grant Osborne says, and Even as the beast conquers the saints by killing them, he is being conquered by the saints and the Lamb. Their death is the final victory. This is evidence of God's power that we see here. We see God's power, God's might, just like we saw God's power and God's might to deliver the Israelites through the sea. We see this sea of fiery glass and God's saints standing there. His power, his might has delivered. So appropriately, just like the people of Israel, look in verse 3 in Revelation 15. Just like the people of Israel at, on the shores of God's powerful might being demonstrated over his enemies, what we see here is the same kind of thing, thing. And that's what John draws attention to. He says, and they sing the song of Moses. Oh, that's what it's referring back to. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb. So which one is it? Oh, it's one and the same. Because ultimately, they were looking forward to God's power and might to overcome. They just didn't know that the ultimate overcoming, the ultimate power of God would be demonstrated in the lamb's blood being spilled. And so it says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb. And look at the words that they sing. What are they singing? They're singing, great and amazing are your deeds. Oh, Lord God Almighty. We need to sing that song. We need, if you're going to be carried into the future and you're going to go through all the trials, tribulations, sicknesses, problems in in life, um, poverty, whatever you might face that the early church faced, if you're going to face these things, you need this song yourself. God, great and amazing are your deeds. You're the one who's almighty. They're singing this song of the Lamb because the Lamb has brought their true deliverance, their final victory over the enemies of God and his people. Now, they're dead. They're in heaven, but they're not sad. They're not singing songs of regret or remorse. They're not, singing, they're not singing about injustice. They're not crying out, looking for justice to be done. They're singing the praises of God for how great and amazing and mighty his deeds are. They're praising God for he is truly great. You know, the, the dragon and the beast... Seemed great to the people of the world. The people of the world were amazed by the power of the beast. Now it's flipped on its head, and it says, No, the beast might have seemed great. The dragon might have seemed amazing, but you know who's truly great and truly amazing is God. Do you know that? Sometimes we can feel like the powers of the world are great. Sometimes we can feel like the devil is is, is scary and we're not able to overcome. Now, on our own, in a sense, we're not. But what we're failing to see is that God is great. He is amazing. His deeds are mighty. He's the almighty God. The devil has no final say. Here we see that God almighty prevails. His power dominates. When you're facing problems in your life, are you aware that ultimately, no matter what happens to you, his deeds are great and amazing? Are you aware, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what, what you're facing, whether it's insurmountable or not, God is great and amazing and he is the almighty God. Meaning he is almighty over all things. He's ultimately sovereign. Do you know that? That's the song that will sustain you into the future. We need that song to sustain us into the future because we're not mighty. You know, even the New Testament Speaks of that. It says, Not many are powerful. Not many are wise. Not many are impressive. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But you know, who is impressive? Who is powerful is God. And He's the one who will deliver us to the future. And so that song of the future needs to become our song to carry us into the future the song of God's power. The powers of this world won't prevail. death will not prevail, poverty won't prevail, God's power prevails. That's what we see here. This song, this image, this worship showing us God's power has prevailed. Then it also shows us something else that's prevailing, some other song that's carrying the saints in the future that's carrying those of us who placed our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins by the way that's who's in view here is standing there it's all those who have trusted in the blood of the lamb and have not denied their testimony this is all those who remained faithful to the end and this song that they're singing is all about God's righteousness as well it's about God's power but it's about his righteousness too The song that's going to carry us into the future is a song about God's power and it's the song of God's righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I get in an argument, um, I think I'm right. Oh, come on. if, If you get in an argument, the reason why you're getting in an argument is because you think you're right, right? Absolutely. Otherwise, you wouldn't argue because you think you're right. And so you argue for your perspective because you think you're right. And so we think we're right in our perspective, and we argue for our perspective and what we see as our rights. But the reality is, is that we seldom are fully right. Even if we're right, if we're arguing, we're probably probably wrong in some way. You know, in, in, in every way, we're not fully right. Even if we are supposedly justified, we're not really fully because... In every way, that how we argue, how we bring things out, we're, we're not right then. So sometimes, you know, I'll be arguing because I'm right, and I turn out to be dead wrong, but not because of my facts. It's because of my attitude and my heart and my motivation are wrong. I don't think there's ever been a time, I know there's never been a time, when I've been fully right in every way, in both my facts, my perspective, um, my motivation, my love for God and my love for the other person. Have I been truly right in all those things? Well, No. But, but you know who has been? And what we see the saints singing about and celebrating, they're celebrating that he is righteous, that God alone is completely right. He's always right about everything all the time. Can you imagine that? I mean, you'd be pretty unbearable if... <laughs> well, I guess you wouldn't because then you'd have the right attitude. But... <laughs> If you were always right about every argument all the time, but then you were also right in how you carry that out, and you were rightly loving, and you were rightly kind in every way, then, then I guess it would be very compelling. And that's what, that's what they're singing about God. They're saying, just and true. Look down your Bibles. Just and true are all your ways. Now, the way is just or righteous and true are all your ways. In everything that God does, in every way, He is always completely righteous. He never has wrong motives. He never has wrong actions. He never wrongly carries things out. There's no divine oops for God. He's completely righteous. All of his acts are right, are just, are true. Why is that important? Because sometimes the enemy tells us that God is not true. He's not faithful to us. Sometimes the enemy tells us that God is not right. When we see that what we think, our perspective is not being validated, and it seems like God is not endorsing our perspective he's not going along with what we think is best we need to have this perspective no God all your ways are just and right Lord I, th- I know what I want but God I'm going to submit my will to yours all your ways are just and right look down further it says all nations look look down on the end there all nations will come and worship you what verse is that is verse four latter part of verse 4, all nations will come and worship you. What for? For your righteous acts. So God's acts are not just right in, in, in being moral, ethically, right. They're, they're, they're right in being moral as well. They're, they're morally right, they're ethically right. In every way God's acts are righteous. There's no fault in any of his actions. Now if you have that perspective it will change your perspective. That all of God's actions are righteous he doesn't have ill will I can trust him no matter what he has my best interest in mind he has the best interest in mind God is always righteous he is never wanting bad for me for his people he is never wanting bad to come for his saints all of his acts are righteous and that's what the nations will come and worship him for one day all the nations will see that his, his acts are righteous Right now, the nations claim that God is unrighteous. They call His righteous words and deeds unrighteousness. And yet one day, all of His righteous acts will be revealed, and all the nations will come and worship Him. I love what Grant Osborne says of this passage. He says, Note They do not, and I think I have it on overhead so you can follow along. It's a longer quote. Note, they do not recount their own deeds of faithfulness and perseverance, nor celebrate their own triumphs in ministry. Their total attention is on what God has done, not on what they have accomplished. This is the perspective we must strive for in our age of pride and self-centeredness. Did you hear that? This is the perspective we must strive for in our age of pride and self centeredness. Their song of victory will be ours when we too celebrate the great saving deeds and just ways of Almighty God. Every time we cry out, How long in our own personal trials? We also, I love this, we also need to sing this song of triumph in faith that God will indeed be faithful to his promises. We also need to sing this song of triumph in faith that God will indeed be faithful to his promises. As Eugene Peterson says, it is in worship that the answer to the how long comes. It's in worship that the answer to the how long comes. As Moses celebrated the judgment of the Egyptians and deliverance of his people in Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32, so we rejoice in his judgment and deliverance in our own lives. Do you do that? Do you you rejoice in his righteous acts? Do you confess? Do you say, God... I confess that all your ways are righteous. I I, want to place my faith in your great saving deeds, that you are almighty, God. Lord, I want to rejoice in your judgment and your deliverance in my life. Lord, that is what's clear. You have already judged sin completely, and you have already delivered me, Lord. That's what matters most. And he goes on to say, at the final judgment, all questions will be answered and the one fact that will emerge is the justice and righteousness of God. The final judgment. That's what we see in this passage. The final judgment. All questions will be answered. The one fact that will the justice and righteousness of God. One day the true United Nations will be revealed in worship of God. All ethnic, all nationalistic barriers will be overcome. Our worship styles, our preferences no longer divide. One day we'll be finally reconciled as one nation, one people, one race, all worshiping God for his righteous acts that have been revealed. That's what it says. All the nations will worship before your righteous acts. John sees the reality of these victorious saints and he sees the sanctuary. Look down at verse 5. He sees the sanctuary, the tent of witness. Now, this is figurative because we know from other scripture and from later on in Revelation, there is no physical temple in heaven. But John sees this vision, this figurative picture. And he says, after this, I looked in the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven. There's this this temple, the tabernacle, the, the tent of witness who's in heaven is opened up. And so the inner place where God's holy presence dwells, where his holiness is manifest, And the angels are given bowls like those used in ministry of the temple. And then out of the sanctuary comes these seven angels with these seven plagues. This is a demonstration of God's power, but then it's a demonstration of God's righteousness being carried out. It emphasizes that the final plagues, they come from the presence of God, and they're an expression of his unalterable opposition to sin. It's the way that Robert Mounts puts it. He says, It's his unalterable opposition to sin. These seven plagues, I think they're meant to remind us of the plagues that came on Egypt. I think that's intentional of of Jesus. It's intentional of John. When we're seeing this imagery here, the Song of Moses, when we're singing the sea, the Song of Moses and the plagues, it's meant to remind us. Pharaoh, the people of Egypt, they placed the people of God in slavery, they held them into captivity. Some were abused, some were tortured, some died. Egypt and its rulers, they were the most powerful nation at the time in the world. There was no greater power in Egypt than what the people of Israel were experiencing. There was no earthly hope for the people of Israel to be set free. No way these slaves could set themselves free from this almighty nation. They were powerless to set themselves free, they couldn't deliver themselves. And then when Moses, the the servant of God, spoke the words of God, it got worse. It didn't get better. It got worse. But then what happened? God, in his power, in his righteousness, he delivered them. He showed himself righteous, powerfully righteous. So these things are all combining. God's power and his righteousness revealed as he carries out his plagues, his righteous judgment. Bringing plagues on Egypt, and the final plague, he he passed over all those. Remember, who trusted in the blood of the lamb, and he spared their lives. And he was right to do that. Blood for blood. And so here we see the saints. Here they're trusting in what they're they've conquered because they're trusting in the blood of the lamb. They've been saved. As all the firstborn Egyptians were killed, these saints have been saved. God's righteousness prevails. The righteousness that we have, not our own righteousness, not by our own power, the righteousness that we have, that we conquer by, is the righteousness of the Lamb. His blood applied to us to make us right before God. So that, yes, we are shot through with sin. Every action of ours is unrighteous in one sense. And yet, God sees us as completely righteous, and we overcome through the righteousness of God. And that's what they're singing about Singing about God's righteous acts, not just in what he does in the world, but through Jesus. It was right that he passed over all of the sins of the past, so that his righteousness and his justice both, all his just and true ways, would be revealed in Jesus. And that's what they're singing about here. The righteousness and justice of God revealed the righteousness and justice of God that they're trusting in. And so the question for you and I is, are we singing of his righteousness and justice. Are you trusting in his power and his righteousness and his justice in your own life? His righteousness is our hope to protect us personally. I love the imagery that Paul gives us in Ephesians of this breastplate of righteousness. It, it, it covers our heart, this, this breastplate of righteousness, because we take on Christ's righteousness. And we know that you know what, every in every way where we're tempted, where our motivation, our thoughts, in every way where the the darts of the enemy might penetrate us, we can say, no, we trust in his righteousness, we trust in his power, we trust in his righteousness, and it's our hope to protect us, and it's our hope that he'll make all things right. It's not just our hope personally, his righteousness is our hope for the whole world. That one day he will. In all his ways make all things right. His righteousness will prevail. and That's what we see here. The saints singing because God's righteousness has prevailed. His power has prevailed and his righteousness has prevailed. And then look back in verse 4. They ask a rhetorical question really. They say, Who will not fear, O Lord? And glorify your name. Who who will not worship? In the end, was there anyone who won't worship? And the answer is, is, is obviously no. In the end, everyone will worship all the nations. We saw in verse five. All the nations worship. So they asked this question in verse four: Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The answer is no one, because everyone will fear and glorify. But look at the four there. What's the next words after that question in verse four? Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? What's the next five words? For you alone are what? Holy. For you alone are holy. So the song that we sing of the future is a song of God's power. It's a song of his righteousness. And it's also the song of God's holiness. God's holiness is his complete immutability, his, his perfection in all of his ways, in all of his thoughts, in all of his motivations, in all of his actions. It's his perfect character. It's his perfect nature. Every one of God's attributes in perfection with no lack. You can't even imagine that. And yet our hope is that that is who God truly is. That's our hope that will sustain us, that he's holy in all of his ways. They say, "For you alone are holy. For you alone are holy. Only God is set apart from all of creation as unique and holy in everything. In His holiness, He is holy, pure. He is holy and able to judge purely. That should give us confidence. This world, all of His ways are pure. He, he judges purely. He's holy in all of His attributes." It's the source of their confidence that God will receive glory in the end. It should be the source of our confidence. Does the holiness of God lead you to sing his praises? The holiness of God is meant to give us assurance that one day all of his deeds, all of his power, all of his attributes will be revealed to be truly great, truly amazing, completely pure in every way. You know, the reason why a diamond is beautiful is because it, it seems to be perfect. You know, the, the more perfect appearing a diamond is, the more beautiful it is, Is so unique. God's holiness is far more unique than a diamond, and it's beautiful. And that's how God will be to us in, in the future when we sing, when we, when we finally grasp that in every way, in all of his aspects, he's completely perfect without any flaw. That's how we can sing about the beauty of God. In every way, he's holy. The fact that he's holy should lead us to praise him for his justice. The fact that he's holy should lead us to trust that all of his ways are true. His holiness is our hope that one day all will fear the Lord. His holiness is our hope that he's the king of the nations. John hears these saints praising God as meant to give hope to all who might die standing for the Lord. You know, all of us are going to die one day. Even if we die for Jesus, the beast, the dragon, has not ultimately conquered. Evil can't win. It doesn't ultimately win. And what we see is these these saints, these martyrs standing victorious over God's place of holy judgment. If you die for Jesus, there's no loss eternally. The dying Christ is to gain Christ after all. What are you living for now? You know, one day when, when God's holiness is finally seen, people from every nation are going to come and worship him. Look, look down at verse 6. It even shows how the angels they, they carry out God's holy will. Look at the picture we see of the angels. They're, they're clothed, look in verse 6, in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. They're dressed in this pure linen. It's a unique way of describing the angels. It symbolizes that they're they are holy, and they're pure in how they're carrying out their actions. They're carrying out God's righteous judgment in a holy way, and it's almost a priestly function. This sash is what priests would wear around their chest. It's also the victor sash, and so there's just this holiness as they're carrying out His victorious, His pure and perfect will. In verse 7, they're carrying out these bowls full of the wrath of God. And those bowls, it's reminds one of the, the bowls that were in the temple that were filled with incense or the bowls in the temple that were used to catch the blood of the sacrifice. And so we're, we're meant to have this kind of imagery on our head of this, this holy act. They're carrying out God's wrath in all of his ways is perfect. And look in verse 8. It says the sanctuary, looking in at verse 8, the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now remember back in the Old Testament, whenever we saw smoke coming down, do you remember when you saw smoke coming down? We saw smoke descend on Mount Zion, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. God's holy presence was there. We saw smoke kind of coming over there. We saw when when Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple, the smoke fills the temple. It was this the smoke of God's presence, the fog of God's presence. It was a physical manifestation of the holy presence of God. And in His holy majesty, what we see here is God declaring that His final wrath is carried out in a holy way and the end time has come. Now, how would that vision help the church? How would this vision encourage the church? It would encourage the church because the church is going to see that God's power, His might prevails in everything that God does. and all of His power, He's righteous. In all of His powerful righteousness, He's holy. You can't separate these three things you see here. God will be glorified. His power will be revealed. The people of Israel, they must have felt like there was no hope for deliverance from the power of the Egyptians. The church in John's day must have felt like there's no hope for deliverance from the power of Rome. Sometimes we can feel like there's no hope in the power of of, of the evil around us. Will God prevail? Yes, yes sing the song of the future sing the song of god's power sing sing that theme song of god's power sing that theme song of his righteousness sing the theme song of his holiness and that's what carries us that's what will give us hope into the future god brought them to the place where it was clear they had no way to deliver themselves when they were in egypt you know they they couldn't diplomacy didn't work They didn't have power to overcome. They were weak. They were feeble. Their efforts couldn't save. But then God demonstrated his power in Egypt by bringing these plagues and bringing deliverance. And that's what we see here in the future. This future fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment that the the plagues in Egypt were just a, a small picture of. The deliverance in Egypt was a small picture of true deliverance. His glory and his power brought deliverance mightily and we see the saints now standing in the true power and righteousness and holiness of God and God's deliverance is evident and they're standing beside the sea of glass mingled with fire these angels are carrying out his, his holiness it's an answer really to the Lord's prayer isn't it thy kingdom come thy will be done we see God's kingdom come God's will done we see that his holy name you know hallowed be your name holy be your name we see God's name. His holy name is really what we want. That's, that's what will be in the future. His name will be made holy. And that sustains us through the future. In the end, it's a cause for great joy and singing. It's not morbid that the church sang that, that we will sing over God's deliverance. We're not singing about the plight of evil. We're singing about the greatness of God. And it's great cause for joy and singing for the early church, for the church throughout the ages, and for us today. Is it your song? Is this your song? Do you sing the song of God's power? Do you sing the song of God's righteousness? Do you sing the song of God's holiness? Because it helps us see that we can trust in Him for all things now and eternally because He is powerful, He is righteous, and He is holy. And He's given His righteousness to us gives us hope in all of our days you know according to the infamous source of knowledge Wikipedia eminently reliable but this this case they got it right I'll show you a picture here I think I have a picture um, at the end there we go perfect 72 stone steps before the entrance to the Philadelphia Museum of Art in Philadelphia Pennsylvania become known as the Rocky Steps As a result of the scene from the film Rocky, tourists mimic Rocky's famous climb, a metaphor for an underdog or an everyman rising to a challenge. We like that theme song far too much. It is a great song. But we like the theme song far too much and we appropriate it as our own and instead what we can say is, no, I'm going to reject that and instead I'm going to have another song and put the other picture up of a greater victory where Jesus walked up that hill In his famous climb, he was the one who rose to the challenge. He is our hope. He is our power. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is the song that carries us to the future. He's our theme song. Let the theme song of worship in the future be our theme song until the future the song of God's power, his righteousness, his holiness. It gives us hope for all our days, and his song carries us and will carry us one day to be with him in heaven. Amen? Well, let's have the band come up, and we will stand and sing.